0: Thanks, Carl. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we we know that the great purpose that you have for this world is to honour and glorify your Son... Uh, And the great purpose that you have for us is that we might honour and glorify him and love him. Uh, And so Lord, we, we pray particularly this morning as we think about the work of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might see him for who he is and that his glory and his dignity and his worth and everything that he is might be seen by us for what it is and that we would really love him for who he is. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I uh, ended up in a conversation this past week with, uh, with a guy who wasn't a Christian. It was lovely. We had a great chat. We had dinner together later on. Uh, and he was a, a, a fellow who didn't know much about the Bible... And as we were talking, it came up that he's he, surprised that Jesus was uh, actually God. He, he didn't know that the Bible's claim was that Jesus is not just the Son of God, but that Jesus is God the Son. And so I found myself explaining that not only is Jesus the Son of God, He is God. Uh, and in that moment, it was hard not to be struck by the strangeness of that claim... Uh, here I was standing before this man who'd never heard that before and trying to explain that Jesus was God, that he was God born into the world as a man. It's hard to deny uh, that that is a strange claim, but what I want to try and do this morning is kind of reckon with that strangeness and try and think through, does it matter that Jesus was both God and man, and if it does matter, then how does it matter why does why is that important? A few weeks ago, we looked at the Trinity we saw that God is one in three persons: the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and last week we looked at God the Father, and this week we 're focusing on Jesus, and we saw when we looked at the Trinity that the big objection to who Jesus is 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 The objection that maybe he's he's not actually God; he's just a man. But we looked a few weeks ago and saw that there's lots of evidence in the Bible that Jesus is really God. He's one with the Father. And so today, what I want to do is 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 not kind of reprove that, but I want to think about the mechanics of what it means that Jesus was both God, the divine Son, uh, and also a, a man. What what did and didn't happen when Jesus took on humanity? Uh, and then I want to think about how that contributes to our salvation. So how does Jesus being God help us and how does Jesus being a man help us? And what I hope that we'll see is that although it kind of seems strange, uh, it actually makes a lot of sense and it's actually, the humanity and, and the Godness of Jesus is actually right at the heart of, of the good news of the Gospel. So in the first place then, the question is, what did and didn't happen at the incarnation? The passage that uh, Chris read for us from Philippians 2, that goes some way to explaining it. Paul begins there by stating what was true of Jesus before he became a man. So verse 6, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with the God something to be used to his own advantage. So uh, from the very beginning, Jesus... God the Son was in very nature God. He didn't become God later on. Uh, He was equal with God. But significantly, he didn't see his equality with God as something that he should use for himself. Instead, precisely because he was God, he used his position as God to serve others. So verse uh, verse 7, "'Rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant.'" Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. There are a few important questions, I think, that arise from those two verses. So first of all, what does it mean that Jesus was made in human likeness and was found in appearance as a man? Did Jesus really become a man or did he just look like he was a man? We find the clear answer to that question in other places in the New Testament. So John, the Apostle John, uh, begins his gospel with these extraordinary words, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Word uh, is is Jesus, the Divine Son, who was both with God and God himself, uh, and that Word became flesh. He didn't just look like flesh, he became flesh. And then Hebrews 2, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Jesus didn't just look like a man, he became flesh, says uh, says the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews, and he shared in our humanity. So Jesus really became a man, and that's what Paul is trying to say too in Philippians. So Paul says that when Jesus... uh, took on human likeness and was found in appearance as a man. He doesn't, he doesn't mean by that that Jesus only looked like a human being but wasn't. So if I tell you that, um, that I have a bike like yours, uh, you wouldn't think that my bike looked like your bike but was actually a goat. You no? Know? Like, if I say I have a bike like yours, it doesn't mean it's really a goat but it looks like a bike, it means that it's a bike, doesn't it? And that's what Paul is saying when he says that, 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 that Jesus was, became, in appearance, uh, took on the likeness of humanity. Uh, it means that Jesus was a man, he became a man, he looked like a man, but he also means that behind his humanity was something, something as well, that behind his humanity was something far, far greater. He was not just a man, he was God as well. That becomes clear when we go on to that other question, what does it mean that Jesus made himself nothing? Uh, Or as some versions have, he emptied himself. What does that mean? What does it mean that he made himself nothing or that he emptied himself? Does it mean that he gave up his divinity while he was a man? Uh, Does it mean that he gave up his power while he was a man? Well, no, that's not what Paul is saying. Uh, Luckily, we don't have to guess what Paul means because he tells us exactly what he means. Making himself nothing is, is bound up with what comes straight after that. That is, Jesus made himself nothing. How? By taking on the very nature of a servant, by becoming a man, and by becoming obedient even to death on a cross. In other words, as people have often pointed out, Jesus' self emptying was achieved not by subtracting, not by taking something away, but by adding to. Jesus didn't take away from who he was as the eternal Son of God, but he added the lowliness of humanity to himself. What Jesus is said to have given up is not his divinity or his power, but his honour. He became a servant. His glory was cloaked by his humanity. Uh, He made himself nothing by giving up his glory and honour in order to be one of us and to be rejected by human beings as their God and to die an ignominious death uh, in our place. And that fits then with what Paul says was restored after Jesus' death. So verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What did Jesus get back? After his death and resurrection, he got back his honor and glory. God exalted him to the highest place. It was a return not of power, he never lost that. It was a return not of divinity, he didn't lose that either. It was a return of his honour and dignity, and even exaltation of what he had before. In Philippians 2, Paul is outlining a profound mystery. The eternal Son gave up his glory, took on humanity, and he did that without ceasing to be God. And after being humiliated on the cross, God exalted him again to give him the name that is above every name. And throughout this whole passage, Paul is careful to safeguard that mystery of the incarnation of Jesus becoming a man. When he uses language like uh, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he's working hard to avoid two errors. He's working hard, on the one hand, to avoid the error of saying that Jesus gave up his divine nature... He's working hard to avoid the error of saying that Jesus, when he became a man, gave up being God. No, that's not the case. Jesus remained God, but became a man as well. On the other hand, Paul is avoiding the error of saying that Jesus merely looked like a human being, but wasn't. No, Jesus took on the likeness, the essential identity of humanity. He was real flesh and blood, but he was also more than that. His humanity was cloaking the honour and the glory of God. Now, it's hard for us to get our heads around how that works, but it's so important that we hold those two things together. Jesus is the eternal Son of God and also uh, a real man. In the history of uh, the church, people have wrestled with that idea and in the 5th century, uh, some people put their heads together and tried to write down on paper the kind of non-negotiables of this idea that Jesus is both God and man. And what's interesting about the document that they wrote, it's called the Chalcedonian Creed. I'll see if you can chuck that into a conversation this week. Uh, what's interesting about that Chalcedonian Creed is that they don't try to explain how it works, they just try and state what they know about who Jesus is. So they don't try and explain how can Jesus be God and man at the same time. They just say, look, this is what this is what we know from the Bible. So they say. That Jesus is perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. Truly God and truly man. In all things like unto us, except without sin. In two natures, here it is, inconfusedly, that's a good word, without being confused, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. He was two, God and man, in one person, but without Uh, being confused, the distinction of his two natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each being preserved. He remained truly God and he remained truly man. Uh, Not parted into two persons, half of him being uh, God, half of him being man, no, but one and the same son in the one person. So we just have to hold those things together. We just have to hold those truths together that Jesus is both God the Son and also a genuine man. But why is that important? Why is it important that we know that? Why is it important that Jesus be God and man? What I want to do in the rest of the time that we have is to think through that uh, issue and try to explain how it is that Jesus being God helps us and how it is that Jesus being a man helps us. Uh, If you want to think a bit more about this, I highly recommend the book uh, *In Light of the Sun* by Andrew Moody. There is at least one copy in the church library, um, and I've certainly been helped by that book and uh, and have borrowed from some of the things that he says. But but to kind of dig into this a bit more, I want to look at chapter one of Hebrews. So if you've got a Bible or if you've got the handout that came out, you can look on there at um, Hebrews chapter one, uh, Hebrews chapter two. Sorry. So to set the context of what's going on in hebrews chapter 2 in hebrews chapter 1 the writer is saying all these amazing things about who god is about the divinity of jesus the godness of jesus um, so according to chapter 1 verse 3 the Son is the radiance of god's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word so he's the radiance of god's glory the exact representation of his being he is God. He's God the Son. But then in chapter 2, he goes on to explain how Jesus being God the Son helps us as human beings. He writes in chapter 2, verse 5, "...it is not to the angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we're speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You have made them a little lower than the angels, you crown them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet." In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. What's going on? Well, the writer there is quoting an Old Testament psalm, Psalm 8. And that psalm is about the honour and the dignity with which God has created human beings. The writer of Hebrews quotes from verse 5 of that psalm. But listen to what the next few verses of that psalm say. So talking about humanity, God, you made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and, and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. When God created the world, he made the world good, it was free from sin and evil, and he created human beings to rule over the world, to develop the world, to cultivate the world, to be responsible for the world, to rule the world under God. In Genesis 1, we're told that God created human beings in His image. That is, we were made by God to be His ambassadors, to represent God on the earth, to rule God's world under God. God created us with great dignity. But the writer of Hebrews says in verse 8, yet at present we do not see everything subject to them. God created us with this responsibility, with this dignity, but that's not what we see. The world is in a mess and we're in a mess. It's not hard to see that. The environment is broken and damaged uh, and worse still as human beings, we seem to keep destroying it. Our work is broken, broken. Everything that we do seems to be frustrated by something. God made us to work, to build, to create, to develop, to explore. But while work can be satisfying, often it's just a grind. It's just a slow grind. Our governments are broken. Uh, That's pretty easy to see, isn't it? Uh, We've seen that in Australia in the last, well not just the last few weeks, in the last 10 years. And if you look around the world, you see that governments are broken all over the world. That political systems are in turmoil. That people have lost faith in democracy. I read an article yesterday that something like 30% of Australians have have faith in their uh, political, or think that the political system is working well, as opposed to 70%, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years ago. Our governments are broken, our relationships are broken, we can't get on with each other. And not only can we not get on with our enemies, we can't even get on often with our friends or our family or the people that we love. The reason that the world we see is not what it's supposed to be is because the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, rejected God's authority over them. Instead of ruling God's world under God, they decided to go out on on their own and all of us continue to follow their lead and to reject God's authority over us. And the result of that is chaos. The result is the world that we see. God told Adam and Eve what the consequences of their actions was Uh, In Genesis 3, uh, God said, first of all, to Eve, "'I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. "'With painful labour will you give birth. "'Your desire will be for your husband, "'and he will rule over you. "'To Adam,' he said, "'because you listened to your wife "'and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, "'you must not eat from it. "'Cursed is the ground because of you. "'Through painful toil you will eat food from it "'all the days of your life. "'It will produce thorns and thistles for you.' And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And that's what we see. The result of sin. That, that, that curse that came over the world. That's what we see. But the miracle The absolute miracle, as the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, is that although we don't see human beings with the dignity that God created us to have, nevertheless, verse 9, we do see this. We see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What we see is Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who became one of us, Who became like us, a little lower than the angels, and he tasted death and is now crowned with glory and honour. That is, by becoming one of us, Jesus restored in himself what had been lost to humanity. He restored to humanity what we had lost and we could never recover. What did he achieve? He achieved forgiveness. Verse 14, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Why? So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For sure it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus has achieved forgiveness. He's made atonement. That is, he's taken away God's wrath at our sin. In particular, he's taken away God's wrath at the sin of human beings. He hasn't taken away God's wrath at angels. He hasn't taken away God's wrath at dogs or whales or cats or pigeons. He's taken away God's wrath at the sins of human beings like you and me. That's why he became a man. He became a human being to pay the sins for human beings. He shared in our humanity so that he might destroy Satan's grip on us that Satan had because of our rebellion against God, his accusations because of our rebellion against God. Jesus uh, was made like us in every way so that his death as a human being, could stand in the place of our death. And the great news is that if we link up, if you link up with Jesus, then you can share in the benefits of all that Jesus has achieved in his death. If you link up with Jesus, then God's wrath against you was spent on Jesus Christ. God's wrath against you was used up in Jesus Christ, in his own suffering and death. Jesus became a human being to take away God's wrath at human beings like you and me. But in the second place, Jesus also brings us to share in what he has accomplished. Uh, That is, he perfects us. So verse 10, "...in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered." Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. What's the writer saying? He's saying that, again, if we've linked up with Jesus, then we're of the same family as Jesus. We're of the same family in the sense that he is the one who makes people holy, and we are the ones that he makes holy. He's the pioneer. He secured it. He secured what humanity was supposed to be. But we are his brothers and sisters in that he shares with his family everything that he has achieved. He restores us to what we were supposed to be, the people that God created. So why did Jesus become a man? It was so that he could restore to humanity everything that was lost, so that he could restore it in himself. Not not, uh, not, that he could come and fix humanity over there, but so that he could fix humanity in himself by taking on humanity, dying in our place, and remaking humanity uh, in the way that it was supposed to be. So that tells us how Jesus being a human being helps, helps us, how being a human helps us, but how does Jesus being God help us? The answer actually is the same, I guess, but from the other side. Uh, The reason that Jesus could restore to humanity what was lost was because He is God. Because He is God, He can do what no human being can do. He could perfectly obey His Father, He could obey even to the point of death, He could die in our place, His one life of infinitely more value than our lives... And because He's God, He could rise from the dead. And because He's God, He can share His life with us through the Holy Spirit. But it's more than that too. It's important to realise that it's not simply that Jesus' divinity means He has the power to fix things. Uh, Jesus comes to us and fixes us, not by replacing like you might replace the parts of a car. Jesus comes and fixes us by sharing Himself with us. He shares with his people the very qualities that he possesses as the eternal son. Uh, We become obedient children because he is the obedient son. We become effective rulers over God's creation because he is the ultimate ruler over God's creation. We have eternal life uh, because we share in his life. Paul writes in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ... And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. All that we need, we receive from Jesus, from who he is. Not simply who he is as a man, but who he is as the eternal Son. Faithful to the Father, obedient even to death on a cross. The living Lord who shares his life with us. If we've linked up with Jesus, we live because he lives. He lives in us. And we share in all that he has achieved for humanity, for human beings in himself. Strange as it might seem, God the Son becoming a human being lies at the very heart of the good news. And it makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense because it's humanity that needed to be rescued. And so it makes sense that God should take on that humanity and redeem and restore it. And it makes sense that God should become a man because no human could rescue and redeem humanity. We're all drowning in exactly the same way. We're all lost. And so we need God to step in and to redeem us. And he's done that. He's done that in the most unexpected way by the Father sending his own Son to become one of us and to redeem and rescue everyone who links up with Jesus. So as strange as it is, thinking back to that conversation from this week, as strange as it is that God, that God should be born into our world as a man, as strange as that is, we shouldn't be ashamed of that strangeness, but we should push into it and say, this is God's great plan of salvation, that by being born into this world, taking on what we are, he could redeem and restore what we are, and make us what he always intended us to be. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the great good news of the gospel that God the Son took on humanity to rescue and restore us. Lord, we know our brokenness. Uh, we only need to look around uh, uh, around us at the world in which we live and the broken Uh, governments and the broken environments and the broken work and the broken relationships, Uh, everything is broken. Uh, We are broken. We don't even need to look outside our own homes, outside our own lives. We can see how much we are not what you created us to be. You created us to have great dignity and honour. And Lord, every day we trade that dignity and honour for sin for rejection and rebellion against you. And yet, Lord, in your great goodness and mercy, the Lord Jesus Christ has entered into our indignity and restored what we could never restore. Though we can't get our heads around how that all works, how it is that God the Son could be a human being, But Lord, we can understand what it was that Jesus achieved. That he remade in himself humanity. He killed off what was wrong. And in being raised to life, he remade us into something better. And Lord, we pray that you would enable us to share in that by faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, that every day uh, we would see more and more you remaking us into the image of Jesus, sharing in who he is, not only as a human being, but also as the obedient son who lives uh, and who reigns. Lord, we ask all this for Jesus' sake. Amen.